I am your host, Stephen, and you are listening to the Learn Swift Podcast, where beginners to the Swift language share their background, experiences, lessons learned, and ambitions. On today's episode, I interview Richard de Borja. Richard is a computational cancer researcher who recently started learning Swift so that he can one day publish an app that will benefit cancer patients. Hey, Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much for having me. This is actually huge for me because I found your podcast not too long ago, and I am just a huge fan. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I, you know, I can't, I can't hear that enough. So, <laughs> um, so what, what, do you, what have you got going on tonight before you came on? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I was listening to some of your podcasts earlier, freaking myself out a little bit, and uh, I think <laughs> hopefully I'm prepared for anything okay. you can throw at me. All right. Well, let's start with your background. Sure. Um, my background's a little bit on the odd side. Uh, I'm actually technical uh, by nature. Uh, my background, education-wise, is mechanical engineering with a specialization in uh, robotics and mechatronic systems. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. It, it kind of gave me the chance to do some uh, core circuit theory and electrical engineering courses and some fundamental computer science courses for programming. Um, but with more of a stint on taking a lot more of the core mechanical engineering, like vibrations, um, solid mechanics, um, motor theory, things like that. Okay, yeah, I I, I mentioned before uh, on the show that I worked in the oil field. I actually worked with quite a few uh, mechanical engineers um, applied towards oil field. Um, you you would think that yeah. you'd find more petroleum engineers, but that's in in the part of it that I was in, I actually worked with a lot of mechanical engineers. So that's, that's pretty cool. I have a, have a lot of respect for that, that science. Thanks. <laughs> so w what are you doing now um, for, for your profession? Uh, right now uh, I'm actually doing cancer research. Um, my, even though my background is engineering and I just took this huge deviation from the field of biology um, I somehow ended up doing uh, biological research on the computational side. Um, much of my work is basically sitting in front of a computer programming. But a lot of the times when you hear you know, someone saying that they're a programmer, they're like, oh, you do web development. Uh, no, it's like, oh, you can build me a mobile app. I'm like, no, no. It's more along the lines of I get mounds of data that I have to sort through and try to determine you know, what are the uh, causal effects of some of the cancers that arise, and if not the causal effects, what are some of the potential treatments that can arise from them? So that's 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 really interesting. Um, I'm I'm trying to imagine the the weird twisted path that you probably took from being a mechanical engineer to being a computational cancer researcher. So can you explain how you made it from from mechanical engineer to computational researcher? Uh, ooh, you know what? I, I have to think about that every once in a while because I don't fully understand it. Um, <laughs> you know, about 10 years. You know what? Let me just take you a little bit of history. Um, I actually started uh, with computers back when I was in grade five. Uh, my grade, grade five teacher, Mr. Uh, Elio Palermo, I remember him very well. And, uh, he, you know, he introduced me to the Commodore 64 uh, and the PET systems. And he let me play on those computers nonstop whenever I wanted to. And it was great. So. We had a small, very small lab. We just played around. Um, you know, fast forward a few years, get into high school, basic programming. Fast forward in university, I'm doing engineering. Um, afterwards, I did robotics for the first about four years of my career. 
uh, building mostly medical equipment, um, so haptic interfaces to something like a brain biopsy device where people control it through an active MRI, um, all the way through um, bomb disposal equipment that was used actually by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here. Um, after that, some uh, network security work that I did for about three years after that, went on to working in application development kind of on the back end for medical systems at hospital. Uh, from there, I decided to go work at an Apple store while I went to go and uh, huh. start doing my master's degree uh, part-time. <laughs> so yeah, I, worked at, I was one, started off as one of those uh, specialists who used to help you on the floor all the way to the person that you yelled to who's one of the geniuses where your iPod is not working because you accidentally uh, dropped it in the ocean. Um, yeah, uh, from there, I, you know, uh, I, I was just the right place, right time. The Human Genome Project was finishing up. Um, this was about 1993, 94, the paper came out. And then a few years after that, uh, you know, they decided, we, look, we need people to do computer work, compu computational work in the field of biology because there's just too much data. Um, stars aligned. Uh, I was uh, great with shell programming. I was great with Perl programming. Um, I knew Unix very well, which is kind of the backbone system that they were all using. And they just needed someone to mine that data and make it available and make sense of it statistically for biologists to, to kind of make decisions upon and MDs to make decisions upon. So I'm trying to picture how how is this? How is the data encoded? I guess you could like how does how do you like essentially how do you download the uh, the human biological structure into a format that a computer can read? Like how does that work? I, like, that that boggles my mind. Well, if uh, biology one hundred and one, if mm -hmm. you were if I were to ask you, you know, what comprise uh, DNA? Um, I, I, you may or may not remember, but it's really just four little bases, four little molecular structures, adenine, cytosine, uh, guanine. So thymine, um, and that's what DNA is. It's an A, T, a C, a G. Well, that's easy for me to do. It's just really long strings. Okay. Um, it's 3.2 billion characters for that string uh, broken down into 23 chromosomes. Uh, but the whole point of it is it's it really just uh, long strings of text. Um, most of it we know. Some of it we're not 100% sure about what it actually is, um, but you know the, the vast majority of things that are important to what makes you know, um, a human a human, um, specific cells to be those types of cells and, and things like that, it's just really long strings of text. That's, 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 that's freaking crazy. So, <laughs> so are, are, the, are, you, are you dealing with little like, like actual strings that that are that have been um i guess encoded from the some person's dna is yeah, that is so, that literally that's literally what you're doing yeah i mean the uh the good news is you know these really long strings it's just basically a bunch of imagine if you would uh little strands of like i said it was 3.2 billion in total length imagine if you will they're broken down into 150 chunks, 150 little string chunks. The, the problem is, is that if you think about it, A, T, C, and G, there's only so many ways that you can arrange those that they would be you know, considered unique. Um, there would be points where, okay, these two strings are exactly the same, but they're not on the same part of the DNA. They're not over on top of one another. 
they're completely different located somewhere else. And when you deal with structures where these like repeat stuff is happening, you start getting confused and going, okay, well, where did these things actually go? And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to take these little fragments of uh, strings that we've um, kind of identified and put them back together to make that you know sequential one to 3.2 billion um, characters in a specific order. And that whole idea, and it's not just one little you know, string that we're doing. We're doing, so there's a DNA comprising every single one of your cells. It's found in every single one of your cells. So imagine we're not just doing one cell, we're doing you know, thousands of cells, potentially millions of cells. So we're doing a whole lot of these. So not only are we fighting with, okay, how do these things go from one to 3.2 billion, but how do they go from one to 3.2 billion for strand or cell A? and then cell B, and then cell C. And um, you let computers take care of most of that. There's a lot smarter people, like people that I get to stand on top of shoulders with, uh, on top of shoulders of, and uh, they, they put a lot of statistics into this, a lot of machine learning into this, and they're able to decipher kind of how these things can best be optimized. Yeah, uh, now I'm thinking like people complain about having to, to um, make their apps uh, function on different devices and edge cases like that. I can only imagine the amount of edge cases that are found in the, in the human DNA. Oh God, it's, it's, it's painful. It can be painful some days. Wow. So what, what piqued your interest in, in app and uh, iOS app development and, and Swift. So you're, you're doing this awesome cutting edge computational research. Um, what, is, what is, what is driving you towards Swift? Is it complimentary um, or are, are you, kind of just wanting to to move paths or is this something um that you're doing for fun um a little column a column b type scenario um part of it originally i remember when you know the original iphone came out uh, the first one actually wasn't available here in canada uh, back in 2007 it wasn't until the 3g came out that we actually had first access to it and then shortly after that the uh, ios sdk was available and i remember in uh 2010 is uh, when I saw the first course for uh, iOS development at Stanford. So I remember it was Evan Dahl who was actually running that course. And I, I started kind of playing around with it. But back then, it was an Objective-C. And although I had a bit of a C background in me, that notation was just confusing the crap out of me. Uh, brackets everywhere. And it just made it a big struggle. So I, I kind of took a hiatus because at that point I started working in the computational cancer research side. So I, I took a bit, that took a bit of a backseat while I focused in on a little more of, you know, more raw data processing. But it was always that one thing in the back of my head, you know, when it's just that little gnat that is just bugging you and you can't reach it and it's just stuck there. You know, fast forward uh, almost 10 years later and I always kept my eye on iOS development. You know, I'd randomly read a book or two um, specifically the Hillegas book for uh, Cocoa Programming, which was great. Okay. Um, um, and the, 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 the Big Nerd Ranch book, uh, Aaron yes. Hillegas? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it was kind of getting my, my uh, mouth a little wet. I know it was more focused on the Mac OS side development, at least the books that I had read, and a few okay. iOS books had come out as well. But um, it just gave me a feel for kind of like Cocoa in general from the Objective-C side of things. Uh, afterwards, though, uh, a friend of mine who, uh, unfortunately, recently she passed away due to cancer. And the one thing 
this had, she had been originally diagnosed about two years ago, so back in 2015. And I remember we would sit in the hospital when she was going there for chemotherapy or when she had to spend overnight and she was, you know, just dealing with some health issues. I would be sitting there and we would be on our iPads or on our iPhones. And I remember, you know, we'd be playing Three's Company, uh, watching that on YouTube. Or we'd be playing a game or playing music, um, dancing it up in her room as much as she possibly could. And then it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, this thing is almost indispensable. And my focus, at least now, is with all the cancer research that I've done, a lot of the things, unfortunately, some of us will never see five, ten years down the line, maybe. But what kind of impact can I make today? And it wasn't until she passed away this past May, and I had spent almost every waking day with her at that point, even over spending uh, my nights uh, with her as well. And I also volunteer at the hospital for sick children here in Toronto in the cancer ward, where a lot of, you know, I, I deal with kids who have cancer, unfortunately, and helping out parents, giving them a little bit of a break, um, bringing them an iPad if they need it, some video games, something to take away, you know, just the, the thought of being stuck in a hospital. Uh, again, every one of them has an iOS device. And I just started thinking to myself, this is not just, this is a clean slate. It's a blank canvas. It's basically anything you want it to be when you need it to be it. And so my focus for doing SWIFT development is really to do iOS development specifically for patients uh, with cancer. Now, I mean, it could cross over to other types of diseases, but that's kind of my focus right now. What will help you know, a, a mother with her child who has cancer make life easier when it comes to medication, when it comes to scheduling appointments? Um, how can you make it somewhat communal where you know, other kids, unfortunately, a lot of people may be in isolation and sometimes they just feel alone? How can they communicate with one another through these thick walls uh, when they're dealing with chemotherapy and things like that? So I, I, you know, I, get to, I get to put my heart and soul into doing the cancer research side of things on one hand, and then I'm hoping to kind of transfer that over just as kind of little side projects to make things a little easier in life for someone who is kind of going through a bit of a rough spots. Wow, that, that, that's really, uh, I wouldn't even know where to start to uh, unpack that. Um, have you start? so I'd imagine that you, you've, you've started with this, with that goal in building this, um, particular application in mind have you have you started on that um are you are you taking input from the doctors at the uh hospital that you that you volunteer at uh the, the good news is i mean i have pretty much all those doctors at my disposal um have i i really just this is about month number three that i've been kind of doing this part-time so um some of the other people that have you know um that have been on your show, they kind of follow the, I'm following the exact same path they have, where, you know, I'm doing the tutorial that's available on Apple's developer website first, and then uh, moving on to some Stanford. Um, I know some people have gone to the Udemy course. I haven't done that yet. Um, because I have a little bit of a background in programming anyway, I'm picking up a lot of it, struggling with some parts because it's not just pure data mining and text mining, um, having to understand how the interfaces and everything work and to be perfectly honest, Xcode itself, that, that's a bit of getting used to from a guy who is a terminal guy who does everything in Vim. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch. 
Yeah, I, I can I can get that, especially when you've got all those uh, keyboard shortcuts. I, I I mess around with them a little bit for small text editing and whatnot, something quick. Oh, but yeah. I would imagine if if you if you spend your days in Vim, uh, you're probably like a ninja at all those shortcuts. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a ninja, but you know how difficult it is. I never touch the trackpad. I'm on wow. a MacBook Pro, and I never touch it other than to launch you know, a word processor so that I can write up a paper on some research that I'm doing. Otherwise, it's just keyboard. Wow. So you said that you've done the Apple courses. I've actually never done those. Um, how did you like those and how, I don't, honestly, I, I don't even know where to find them because they never came up in my initial searches. Um, what, what did you uh, learn in those? Um, when I say the Apple courses, there was actually, um, the, the primary ones are again, the Stanford iOS development. Oh, courses. Sorry. okay. Through the, through the iTunes U. Yeah. App. Through the iTunes U. Okay. App. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Prior to that though, I remember when the iOS SDK first came out and they took the, uh, what did they say? They took the show on the road and they were doing uh, little pop-ups. Um, they'd go to various cities around the world and do tutorials on, iOS development. And I remember, I, luckily, because I worked at Apple, I had left at the time, I had a very good friend of mine who was still working at Apple. And he gave me the heads up and I applied. And luckily, I was one of the few to get the ticket. Uh, it was here right in Toronto, so I didn't have to go very far. And I remember I was just sitting there completely in awe. Um, again, a little bit of a break after that. But I'm just, you know, Swift is making it a lot more accessible, which is why I appreciate your podcast so much. It's with all the backgrounds that so many people and guests that you've had, you know, there's no reason not to try. Yeah. You know, the thing that I, I, I like most about Swift is it's, 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 it's pretty easy to read and it's pretty easy to get the grasp of on a very basic level and you don't feel super intimidated by it. Um, so kind of, kind of going off that though, since you, you, you have programming experience in C and you said Perl and uh, doing bash and, and whatnot. Um, what, what are you finding that um, is, is difficult with Swift for you? Because I'd imagine that, I mean, you understand what a string, you know, you know, you understand value types and references and, and whatnot. What, what about Swift is actually uh, more difficult for you? The, I guess with Swift itself, it reminds me so much of a scripting language, and I had dabbled into Python a little bit uh, previously, and it very much reminds me, at least syntactically, of that as well. So the, the parts that I'm actually having difficulty with is probably some of the more object-oriented stuff, uh, because all the things that I've done is functional slash procedural, that it, um, it, it just took a little bit for it to wrap my head around. Uh, simple things like a delegate, for example. Um, it, you know, I started beating myself over the head saying, what's this delegate do? I don't understand this. Driving me nuts. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think once you, you, you accept the fact that, okay, that's there, it'll make my life easier, let's move on to the next thing, and hopefully it'll start making sense to me afterwards. So as long as I just keep doing it, I'm hoping a lot of these little things it'll pick up on. Right. Just like uh, knowledge by overexposure essentially i'm hoping i'm really yeah. hoping you tell uh, me does it work it, it, it slowly but surely I, I would say um yeah uh optionals took me a, took me a while to get i 
like I understood like like you know you read the book definition of an optional and it's like oh it's it's something that it's there or it's not it's like okay yeah. great <laughs> I get I get I get that it's like um what was it um the cat in the box you open it it's oh <laughs> it was it's not Schrodinger, Schrodinger. is it Okay, yeah, Schrodinger's cat, kind of like that, right? Like yeah. you, you open the box, right, with with a, with an exclamation mark. It's either there, or it's not. And yeah. did you kill it by putting the exclamation mark there? You I have don't no know. idea. <laughs> but yeah, it, um, but it, it still took me a while. Like it took so long for me to figure out like when when like when that exclamation mark is even appropriate, which is almost oh, never yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but even when to use optionals, like on my own, like I, I, I knew when like, you know, the SDK and the frameworks were telling me to use optionals because they're making me use them. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but when to use them on my own, that was a whole nother story because, you know, I, I, I remember when I was making some of my first models, uh, my first classes, um, I was I was making things. Um, implicitly unwrapped optionals, like just for everything, like all yeah. my properties were implicitly unwrapped optionals. I don't know why I did it. I think I saw it in a tutorial. So I was just like, oh, well, just that, doing it. that yeah. must, yeah, but like, they didn't even, they didn't even need to be optional though. Yeah. Right. Because I'm providing them values. I'm not, I, they're not being loaded up from some data source. Right. I'm providing all these in my, in my code, um, through simple, simple things. And <laughs> here I have all these implicitly unwrapped op optionals. Um, Sorry, now that you've mentioned it, MVC was a new one to me. The whole okay. paradigm of MVC. Uh, that was a, a bit on the new side to me. It makes sense now, but again, as a person who pretty much has just been doing large-scale data mining, it was definitely a, a different type of concept, which took me a little bit longer to kind of ingest than I would have expected. So what... Um... Going from um, functional and procedural to, um, you know, object and protocol oriented, um, what kind of, I would imagine you probably do have some kind of design pattern that you follow when you're, when you're doing procedural and, and functional, correct? It, I'm, it's not really MVC or, or, or not. Um, I mean, algorithmically, there are things that we, we utilize, uh, some fundamental stuff, but I mean, most of the reason why I'm harping on MVC so much is because the, it makes sense in the concept of doing it from utilizing an interface. Right. It, because, I, you know, with the exception of having an interface as, you know, well, okay, here are your arguments to a specific um, API or a specific clash or something along that lines, the, the utilization of it being almost from a physical perspective, something that you touch, uh, that was just kind of mind-boggling to me because, again, most of the times that I do a call, it's either uh, a simple API that I'm just saying, hey, give me this chromosome and feed me position here to position here. Look for a gene that's causing this. Look for something that's mutated here. You know, these are very, I guess in my world, a little more simplistic, whereas in the, you know, it's something you're physically touching. Here is a button. That you have and then that button is going once you do something to it it's going to control something and then you don't want to go directly into your data for this you want to actually have an intermediary for it and it just it was a new type of concept to me but in terms of uh the you know the the design patterns sure there's of course there's going to be design patterns that's just a fundamental thing of 
you know, software engineering and, and programming in general, but it, it's really just a different way of seeing it. Yeah, MVC is definitely one of those things. Uh, the more you do it, the more you'll, uh, the more you'll get the hang of it. And when you feel like, because the, there was one thing that I, one thing that I, and, and it might, it might not necessarily be wrong, but it definitely I don't think it was right. Um, I was doing something where I was kind of halfway there, so I would instead of uh, setting the properties of my cell directly in the view controller for like a table view, you mess with table views, I'd imagine. A little bit, not to the point. A little bit, really. okay. Yeah. So you have a method called self at index path, and that's where you essentially tell the table view what you're going to be presenting for each cell that you have. Um, so that's where you'll you'll usually have some kind of collection. Um, I, I usually have an array of some some kind, and then you'll you know each element of the array will be you know be feeding information to the cell. So at that point, you can you you will typically either use the default cell, or more likely you'll have some custom cell, and then you'll have like a you could have a label, an image, maybe there's a button in there, um, et cetera, you know anything. So sure. what I was doing at that point is I I made a you know a, a custom cell subclass, and then I would have a configure UI method that would pass in my my model to like direct it would take my model directly um or my object rather so it would say this was of class person and then it was you know say it's like for some displaying person information and then it would take a person object and then update it based on those person properties um inside the cell view inside the view itself but from the more that I've been messing around with it, that's not actually very reusable, right? Um, yeah. I've got I've got a view that is requiring a person class to update its view, but really all it needs is, is if I have an image, a label, and a button, um, all it really needs to know is it needs a string and an image or a string that can be that can call an image and be instantiated from a string. So you want to abstract that out, basically? Right, exactly. So instead of calling instead of um injecting that that person object um you would maybe maybe calling person.name and person.image into those where it takes the string in the image or this you know uh, just pass whatever yeah. right um and then if you needed to you could reuse that for another object so you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to dance around that yeah. so the the view controller handles passing that information to and from so if you have another object, you wouldn't have to worry about it being stuck on that person object. You can actually just pass it to whatever intermediary to pass onto whatever other object you wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. if you had, say, uh, a pet class, yeah. right, you wouldn't have to worry about it of being of type person. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's that was the moment where I realized, oh, I get what the view controller is doing. I get why the view is supposed to be quote unquote dumb. Mm -hmm. And I get why, you know, the model shouldn't be messing with the view at all. And that it, was it a... makes sense to me conceptually as we're talking mm -hmm. about it, but sometimes I'll just sit there in front of that concept reading the notes and I'm like, what? Yeah, I, it, 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 and I, I do that too, and I spend a lot of time reading and researching, and, and I, I, I code every day, don't get me wrong, but when I'm not coding, I spend almost all my other free time reading articles about best practices and then like all... Uh, and I, I, I get to this point where I've got so much noise in my head of oh, what's yeah. right and wrong 
and when I go back to code, it's like I like I freeze up almost like I, I I haven't I haven't made any like I hadn't I haven't worked on like a project project of my own for a couple months now and I just started one back up a couple days ago and I decided that I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to keep all that knowledge but I'm not going to try and do it the perfect way cuz that's what's been crippling me these last couple months is yeah. I'm trying to trying to make it um quote unquote right but there is no there really is no right way here's a question for you because mm -hmm. you're more experienced specifically with Swift and iOS development than I am and this is the thing I've been struggling with a little bit is there are 5 million ideas in my head mhm mm and to say, okay, what are the absolute important things needed? I'm unlike you where it needs to be perfect. Uh, a lot of my code is, you know, stuff that I make available is just open source. And, and I don't want to be embarrassed. And I had to figure out how to get over that hurdle to say, who cares if it's gorgeous? Put it out there for someone to use. If that's going to help someone, this is going to be fantastic. The point is get it out there. And I'm trying to put that in my own projects because my own projects don't exactly have a deadline or anything i'm always just like oh scope creep oh feature oh something else and i just don't know how to you know tear myself away from that uh, honestly i don't have an answer for you <laughs> um <gasps> so I, i'm usually um i don't know i, I I'll, I'll have a project um 90 done and then I'll have, you know, that that last little bit of it ends up being a lot more work than I thought it was. And it's like, yeah. man, I don't really even like this. Like, you know, this is just an idea that I wanted to do. And then, you know, I've, I've done that a handful of times and I, I don't have anything in the app store. But yeah. you, you're talking about having all, I'm guessing you just have all your code when you're saying open source, you have all your stuff public in GitHub. Yeah, I, I'm. And you're, I wouldn't worry about being embarrassed about the quality of your code in GitHub. The vast majority of my stuff is is public, yeah. and I, Good for you. I, <laughs> the I, I think of it um, as it, it's it's going to show your progression. I mean, nobody expects somebody who nobody expects to go look at somebody's first commit to their repository on GitHub to be this masterpiece. Yeah, um, that is so true. So I mean. I would think of it as is it's, it's it's like your uh it's like your programming diary and how how your progress has come. I mean that's and you've even got your chart to see to keep you accountable. I try and I try and have a green square every day. Yeah. Um I mean, it might not be anything groundbreaking, but I like to that's that's what I try to do to keep myself accountable is I try to make those green squares fill I I, I one day I'm going to have all those filled up. Yeah. That's that's my goal. But <laughs> I haven't haven't been doing that great on it. Um, yeah, I would I wouldn't worry about that so much. Yeah, it's just uh, it's more of a mental roadblock. I mean, I can you know I'm basically at work seven o'clock in the morning, um, building up code, doing stuff, and some of our stuff is behind you know a little more private because there's some uh, I guess there's some privacy concerns. And the one thing about the uh, scientific field is the whole notion of competition for publications. So sometimes we'll have to keep our, our code a little bit on the behind the wall side of things until we're ready to publish so that no one can steal your concept and publish ahead of you. Which kind of 
it sucks. It really does suck. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, I I can I kind of get that. I mean, because what good is it gonna? I don't know. Because you're you're, you're you don't really get to. I mean, it's not like you're patenting it afterwards, right? I mean, it's 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 for the better, yeah, betterment of of medicine and science in general. So I I can kind of understand. I can under I but I also understand your misgivings slightly about yeah. it because. What if somebody could take that and and take take it in their own direction and find find another application for it or whatever? Yeah, I mean, the it's a bit unfortunate, but the um, you know everyone always tells me they're like, why are you doing cancer research? And I and I tell them the exact same thing every time. You know, it's like, well, it's better than you know not doing it. Um, why wouldn't I try to make something a little bit better uh, every day, a little bit better? Uh, some days feel a lot more painful than others, but you know it's pretty much like any other job. But the the currency that's available, there's not huge salaries and as a programmer or a software developer or software engineer in the field for academia um, in that regards. And the currency really is your publication record. There is something there is the stigma associated with if you have your name in a very high class scientific journal, that even if you don't even know what that journal is, you've never heard of it. It's just the fact that you're in a you know a scientific journal. That's huge. You must be a genius. I'm the furthest thing from a genius. I get to work you know shoulder to shoulder with guys who have their PhDs. You know I've 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 mentored some of them. Some of them were you know students that I worked with, and they've gone on and you know I have to call them doctor now. And I don't have a PhD, but you know my name is side by side with some of the the, the giants in the field and. It just makes me laugh, and it's just like, no, you know what? Technically speaking, anyone can publish a paper. You just need time and a lot of coffee. <laughs> well, I I think that you're probably downplaying it a little bit, doesn't? I mean, what what's the review process to get into one of these academic? I mean, I, I I've had to cite plenty of of academic yeah. journals. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, they 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 hold prestige for a reason. There's a reason why you can't just use wikipedia for for your research papers in college oh very um, true so <laughs> what 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 is that review what is that review process like well you, you know what's quite fascinating nowadays the whole idea of uh preprint servers um i don't know if you've ever heard of them uh, there are arxiv.org uh bioarchive archive.org uh these are great so if you were working on something, uh, so much data is available for you to play with. It's great. It, it, it is literally somewhere, someone who is interested in something, whether you're a student in high school or someone who's retired that is just trying to learn a little bit, you can get your hands on some data and play. A lot of these databases are available free of charge. Uh, a lot of governments have put a lot of money and research into this, and they just say, you know what, take the data. If you can do stuff with it, great. All the power to you. Once you figure out something relatively novel, and it may not even be like ridiculously novel, you may have found um, your your DNA. I told you comprised one to three point two billion characters, and if a segment of those, say one of the bases, that's very important because it it does something special to make your liver a liver, uh, your liver cell a, a liver cell, um, but a little change there changes it so that that cell stops acting like a liver cell. It starts doing something else. Um, 
a cell is supposed to die at some point in time. It has a certain life cycle. And usually there's a signal to, to say, okay, you're going to have to kill yourself. It's also called apoptosis. Well, what happens if there is a change there that prevents it from killing itself? And so this thing that is should have died because it's not acting the way it should be is now there and could be proliferating, meaning that it's just duplicating nonstop. What does that sound like? Well, it kind of sounds what most people would describe a tumor to be. And there comes a point where that growth just keeps happening. It overtakes the majority portions of what that organ, in this case that I was talking about, your liver does. So there, you know, these are, these are the things that I get to sit down and think about. Um, but that data is available for literally anyone to do. So if you come up and you find out, okay, well, the change that was happening to liver, I was just looking at some data in someone's heart and found something similar in nature, and it's causing some canal defect. I don't know, just making something up here. Well, you use the same concept and principles for a completely different uh, organ as well as a completely different disease, transferred it somewhere here, cite that paper saying this is where the idea came from. I found it in data sets A, B, and C. I'm going to write something up. It doesn't have to be overly extravagant. Make your data available. Cite where it came from. If you did some code, push that along with you pushing your paper onto these preprint servers. There doesn't have to be a review process for it. You can just make it available for anyone to see. Wow. Now, what scientific journals are doing, they're saying, okay, well, I like having exclusivity. So, you know, you can send it to these different publications and say, I'll literally put this on the preprint server for people to take a look at. And here are some of the, the comments that people are, are, are stating over it, which could be good, could be bad, doesn't, I don't know. Um, once you've submitted it, you know, the editor itself will take a look and say, is this worthy of being in our journal? Is it, you know, global enough for, um, for, for the more general ones, for everyone to understand, or is it specific enough to our cancer-type journal? You can't throw something like a, you know, a foot and mouth disease for something that's cancer-related. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, and then if it does pass the editor saying, yeah, okay, it kind of fits and it seems to be progressed far enough, we'll send it out for review. And they'll send it out to kind of specialists in the field of your paper subject. And they'll, you know, come back, give some comments. There's a little bit of give and take. They'll have questions. They'll tell you, you know, well, this is just completely wrong based on this new research. And you'll, you know, go back and forth a little bit and you'll decide whether or not to outright reject it or if you can put in a rebuttal to say, okay, well, these are the things that we've done, the additional work. And, you know, depending on the back and forth that's happening, at some point you, you may get that paper out in an actual bound journal and available for people with, hey, Stephen is now in science or nature, and his paper on this is on the cover. And that's kind of how that process goes along. Sounds pretty intense to me. <laughs> it could be painful. It could be so painful. Uh, so... Uh... We did kind of go on a tangent there. Yeah, um, sorry. So, my no, that 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 is completely fine. I've always kind of wondered about that. Um I had I had a um one of my one of my old bosses was a was a mechanical engineer and he was um he he was published, he had some some patents and stuff like that, but I never really I never really asked him cuz I honestly I we we weren't like close or anything. He was my oh, boss. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't really like, "Hey, what was it like getting published?" Um but yeah, I'd always I'd always wondered that um, because you know, pretty much that's the the gospel for any any kind of uh, college paper that you do. You use academic yeah. journals, um, or, you know, some which is typically the most reputable source for you know 
anything that you're writing on. I'm kind of hoping that, you know, having gone through that review process for several different journals, that going through the uh, Apple review process for apps should be a bit of a cakewalk. Yeah, Hopefully. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, but uh, probably a little bit quicker to get back to you. I'm hoping so. Yeah. Um, really hoping so. So uh, going back to iOS development, mm-hmm. uh, what what are you getting good at? What what have, you got any recent wins? Like you 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 just like made a breakthrough on some concept that you're fuzzy with? Uh, I have to admit I haven't been kind of looking at the 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 check marks beside the the things that I've been looking to learn. Um, I don't even have kind of like a lesson plan. Uh, I've just been trying to do some of these tutorials and playing around. <laughs> Funny enough, I've actually been trying to take a look at using Swift for some of the data mining that I'm doing uh, on the computational side of things at, at work. Uh, it doesn't exactly fit because uh, a lot of the uh, frameworks have been predefined for so many other languages other than Swift. Um, so that definitely, I, I really follow the reusability of, of code very much so. Are, but are in those terms frameworks of, proprietary? Uh, no, those frameworks are not proprietary. Uh, a lot of stuff is, you know, Perl, Python. Uh, funny okay. enough, I'm actually working in Go more recently. And um, really? Go, I have to admit, is pretty fantastic, but it's, you know, close enough to Swift that sometimes I get confused between the two and I'm losing myself when I'm trying to compile things. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I've seen a little bit of Go before. Yeah. Um, I, it, it does, it does it, it does it use, uh, asterisks for pointers and stuff? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because I'd seen a little, I'd seen a little bit uh, of of Go syntax. I was, I was kind of curious because somebody I I knew said they were writing a a Go microservice, and I was yeah. like, oh, what does Go look like? They're like, oh, it's actually pretty easy. Whatever. But yeah, I was kind of as a backend. I, I think it, it. I'm hoping it's going to complement some of my Swift iOS development. Um, just making you know, just making APIs available. So that people can just take a look at those endpoints and start, you know, utilizing those. And I mean, we'll see. Um, so the I guess that back to one of the questions you had about some of the difficulties right now, it's kind of keeping things a little bit separate. Because you know, I mean, you would know having a full time job and doing something totally different, kind of on the side that you're still passionate about, but twenty four hours in a day, and there's only so much you can do. I mean, my time from 10 at night to two in the morning is kind of dedicated to the Swift programming, just playing around. Wow. I, w- I wish, <laughs> I wish I didn't have to sleep. It's, it's oh, pretty much is what it is. Me too. You know, <laughs> it's like, me if I just too. didn't have to sleep, I could spend eight hours at work and then I could come home, spend eight hours with my wife and then spend another eight hours coding. And then it'd just be, you know, a happy, happy family. Perfect. And then, <laughs> Yeah, and then and then if if and when I I do get a job as a programmer, I'd spend eight hours at work programming, and then come home and do another eight hours of programming. But <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen anytime <laughs> soon because gotta sleep. Although I definitely uh, don't get eight hours of sleep, I usually get around five or six during the week. Yeah, I'm with you about four to six hours, depending on how heavy a load I have. Is yeah, but usually by the, by the end of the week, if I've been getting into bed late. That's usually when I start slipping on getting up in the morning. Oh. Yeah. So, is there anything about the language or or iOS development in general that you're that you're not liking at the moment? Um, is there anything that you kind of wish was a little more clear or um, maybe not so esoteric? Because there there are some 
there are some APIs that are kind of old and rusty that haven't really been dusted off in a while. Uh, you know, the, one of the ones that I was uh, taking a look at previously, because when I told you that I wanted to take a look at some of the APIs, this is more for the Mac OS side. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's all still an objective C is the accelerate uh, framework. I don't even think so, I know that one. Yeah, it's, it's more for, it was really originally designed with uh, matrix manipulation. Um, so I was looking at that in hopes of applying some of the computational biology that I was working with. But uh, I, I, I just kind of notice a lot of legacy things that are in Objective-C. Not to say that I don't like it, but uh, you know, I'm not focusing, on, focusing in on Objective-C at this point in time. So I, I guess, question to you, you know, knowing Objective-C, and I, I remember when I first sent a Twitter message to you um, talking about this, Objective C is still pretty dominant in terms of you know APIs that are still available for uh, macOS development, not specifically iOS, but uh, for for on the Mac side of things. Uh, would you say that's true? So I haven't really messed a whole lot with uh, Mac development, oh, okay. um, but Got but I, I have I have heard and read that um, probably it's it's probably hasn't got as much attention because uh, probably 99.5% of the people that are learning Swift development and are, are learning it for iOS. Um, I would, I would, I would wager to guess that most of the people that are still doing Mac OS development that, that are doing Mac OS development are pro largely doing it in objective C. I would, I would probably say. So I'd love to know the, the percentage if we go back to mobile the percentage of Apple apps that are developed in Swift versus those that are developed in Objective-C. I'm very curious to find out what that ratio is. Like apps on the App Store or Apple apps themselves? A Apple apps themselves on iOS devices. Like Calculator, so, for example. Right, yeah, Calculator. Um, I don't know if they redid notes. First, I don't know if I'm just imagining that. I, I'm probably making that up. I, I have no... <laughs> let's, let's, let's look that up real quick. Well, that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Just I, I always wonder, a bunch about are they really going to release that? Are they really yeah. going to give all that info away? Well, you know, they got real excited. You know, I don't know that they're going to say how many of our apps are in Swift, but you, yeah. I don't know if you had paid attention, but um, did did you uh, watch any of the WWDC um, uh, sessions videos? or anything? Uh, I took... I, the ones that the sexy things like uh, Coromel, okay, uh, AR Kit, you know, those are the ones that I was paying attention to because they were the brand new and kind of Swift four as well. Uh, that was really it. I actually have to go back and, and start because I'm trying to dedicate more time to this. I should really go back and take a look at more of those in depth. Yeah, I'm still I'm still kind of going back. I, I've been been wanting to look into to the Vision framework a little bit and uh, and the natural language processing. I think those have pretty cool. Um, yeah. Not, which didn't get a whole lot of lot of exposure um well during the keynote yeah but i you know i think they have a lot of uh a lot of things that i'm interested in but the xcode uh editor is written in swift now so they, the they yeah they they refactored the just the code editor not yeah. the not the whole thing but mm -hmm. yeah the the code editors was was rewritten in swift 
Okay, that makes yeah. me feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're making small incremental. I mean, you know, and, and all in all reality is as much as they're pushing it, um we're we're kind of all their guinea pigs at this point <laughs> because it it doesn't have a stable ABI. Um meaning that, you know, each Swift version is is going to need to be recompiled at some point. Um yeah. even if there's no syntactic changes and everything, you know, there's no breaking changes between syntax. Um the application binary interface might uh, under the hood what what um goes between the uh and i i might be thinking I, this might be wrong but it's it's what the program the interface between the program and the machine versus the program and the user facing in right so they might change something on that end and it might look on the surface like everything's the same but it might be still different under the hood which is why you have to recompile. Yeah. I mean, that binary, I have no idea in terms of deconstructing it, finding out, is it exactly the same from one version to the next? It, it, well, it's, it's yeah. not. So when you have a stable ABI, then, then it would yeah. be. And that's, yeah, that's really the... But I, I don't really know a whole lot about low-level low level, uh, stuff down there beneath the hood. So we are actually starting to run a little low on time, Richard. Um, is there is there anything that you want to touch on before we before we sign off? Um, you know this this is I, I can't thank you enough again for the uh, the the podcast itself. Um, it has been when I found it. Uh, actually, I can't even remember how I found it. I think it was a shoot off of another Swift podcast that I was listening to, and just um, it was under the recommendations. But you know, just to know that a, a number of other people are just biting the bullet. And, and, and trying it out from very different, um, I guess, different backgrounds can make it a, a no-brainer for me to say, you know what, just bite the bullet and go for it and just play around. Sure, there's only so much time in the day, but who needs eight hours of sleep anyway? Um, and if there's a product in my head, I, you know, it's, it's the perfect time to just try and get it out there. Right, yeah. To totally agree with you there. And, and you know what, uh, again, it, it's really cool how approachable you are because I remember I just sent you a, a DM to say, love your podcast. We started chatting. We even talked a little bit about some of the cancer work I did. And, you know, I said, you know, hope you don't mind if I hit you up with some questions. You're kind of that epitome of what the, the community is like. Just ask, you know, do you mind if I hit you up anytime? And you're like, oh, please, anytime. You have a question. I may not be able to help you, but if I can, I will. Like, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, really, I really like it when people reach out to me, you know, make kind of kind of validates what i'm trying to do um you know i i'm not i'm not gonna sit sit on this, this show and say that you know i'm i'm giving everybody great advice but um i i i think that what i the podcast the swift podcast and ios development podcast in general are kind of missing is everything's kind of coming in from the expert you know it might even be catered towards beginners but it's coming from the experts down to the beginners mm -hmm. whereas where I, I like to feel that i'm like we're all learning together at the same time with this the one. same ride for all of us yeah yeah so I, I i that that's what makes it a lot of fun yeah. for me so before we sign off um i want to make a i don't want to call it announcements or whatever but i do want to um once again, mention that the Learn Swift podcast is on the Swift Coders Network. 
Richard, are you familiar with Swift Coders or Fireside Swift? Uh, no, neither one of them. I had heard you had mentioned that previous, in I think your previous uh, episode. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. I I I should be, uh, you know, pitching these guys every show. Uh, I've been doing a terrible job at remembering to do it. I was actually <laughs> had planned on doing it in the middle of the show, not the end. But sorry, Zach, Steve, and Garrick. <laughs> but you guys, uh, if you haven't heard Swift Coders, uh, Garrick has a similar format to this show, uh, except this show more or less copied his. But <laughs> coming from a beginner's perspective. Um, he interviews uh, the creator of Swift Format and uh, Layout, uh, which are open source projects. And then Zach and Steve from Fireside Swift, uh, by the time this episode airs, um, they'll have a new episode out. Um, I do need to take a little bit of beef with Zach on the show, though. Um, they have had this thing going back and forth where uh, the Stephen on their show, Stephen Berard, um, had, was said he would eat him in the event that they were stranded on a desert island. <laughs> and he made the assumption that I was the Stephen that did not want to eat him. And I need to set the record straight, Zach, that if we were stranded on a desert island, I wouldn't even wait till I'm hungry. I would take you <laughs> and roast you over that fire. <laughs> As as soon as I knew the food was gone, yeah. So. I'm not gonna ask how that got started. You have to listen to this. You have to listen. To, their show's great. It's 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 really it's really casual. Um, it's like two guys bantering about a swift topic and learn something, laugh along the way. Pretty cool. For the record, I actually did subscribe to Swift Coders because of you. So okay. there you go. Well, there you go. Garrick, you got at least one one more subscriber because of the Learn Swift podcast. Remember that. <laughs> yeah, I highly yeah, definitely check those out. Done. So so Richard, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? Uh Twitter. I'm kind of stuck on that one. Uh at R D E B O R J A at Deborha. At R Deborha, sorry. Um if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can follow me on Instagram too. Um but uh, at R Deborja as well for that one. Uh, those are kind of really the uh, the big things. At some point in time, hopefully I'll have a, a, a website up and running so that people can uh, learn from my mistakes when I start documenting a little bit of kind of my adventure through the whole idea of iOS development and Swift development. Um, and, and those are really the, the two best ways to get a hold of me, at least right now. Awesome. Well, hey, hey Richard, thank you for coming on. And, uh, you know, we'll keep in touch. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes this episode of the Learn Swift podcast. I hope our discussion left you feeling inspired and that you're not alone. If you enjoyed the show, please consider telling a friend, recommending the show on Overcast, or leaving a review on iTunes. If you want to be on the show or say hello, you can reach me on Twitter at Stephen underscore 0351. Thanks, and see you next time.